Lord, you are great indeed. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy your presence together in this moment. Lord, we thank you that your love is from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, that you are faithful and good. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you like to take a seat? Well, welcome back. Um, I just funny over coffee break. Such good coffee. That's what I remember about All Souls. Always, <laughs> always good coffee. I seem to remember that, that at um, Little Souls, do we still do Little, Little, Little Souls? I think that's the strongest coffee I've ever drunk in my whole life. <laughs> and I seem to remember that, that there were young parents like ours who would, would come back with these eyes of like, oh, can I have another cup, please? <laughs> strongest coffee. Absolutely. So just to, to recap this morning, we were looking at um, God's purposes, his purpose, uh, the purpose of the Christian life, which I entitled uh, The Father's uh, Good Pleasure. Uh, and in this talk, we're going to be uh, moving on to look at the shape of the Christian life. Um, so um, it's fundamental uh, dynamic, uh, which I'm going to call union uh, with Christ. That's, that's the shape of this life that we have been uh, given to pursue. And then finally, um, this afternoon, we'll look at uh, the power of the Christian life, how we can step into uh, this purpose and this shape uh, that God has uh, for us. And again, my hope across these talks is that we'll be reminded of the fundamental purpose, why we're here, uh, how we can take hold of that, and that God helps us to step into it and empowers us to live this life. So again, just a little recap uh, before the break. We're talking about the primary purpose of God making everything. This vast, enormous creation uh, was so that we help uh, to be the setting for his dealings with us, relationship uh, with us. And his primary purpose for us is that we might be like Jesus, who completely embodies his project. Let us make human beings. It is finished, the perfect uh, human life to grow up into uh, Christ. And when that happens, that he is not a dry thing for him. That's something he takes enormous pleasure in because he loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. Do you want to just at the end of the session uh, this morning, uh, just before the break, uh, Richard um, uh, got you just to, to sit for a moment and think what's the one thing uh, that's spoken to you out of this morning's session. Uh, do you want to just take a moment just to turn to the person next to you um, and just maybe share with them, share with each other what it was, what's the one thing that you took away uh, from the morning? Is that okay? Yeah, do you want to just turn? You can do that now. There we go. It's a weekend away. You've got to do stuff like this. Sorry.
Was... Is that long enough? Do you all get a go? Oh, that's loud. Is that okay? Um, great. Well, I, 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 I take confidence for the fact there wasn't stony silence. Um, unless you were actually talking about how great the coffee was. Um, but, um, so this second talk is an exploration of the shape of the Christian life, uh, which I've summed up as uh, union uh, with Christ. In other words, the shape of the Christian life is an identification with Jesus uh, in his death, so he can manifest his resurrection power in us. It's an identification with him in his death, so that he can manifest his resurrection power in us. And we're going to see that that takes place, not on some super spiritual plane, but it takes place in our ordinary, everyday lives. And how it comes is from living in a relationship with him of listening and asking and how he makes his own life in us as we do that. And as he himself loved us and gave himself for us, he enables us to give ourselves to him and to others. And then we're going to have a little time to pause and reflect uh, at the end of the session. Is that okay? Good. So before the break, we looked at those crucial junctures where um, in John's gospel, the, the Greek word for human being, anthropos, uh, come, crops up the man in the pool at Bethesda. I have no, no one, no anthropos to get me into the pool to be healed. Uh, I have, and Pilate pointed Jesus saying, here is the man, here is the anthropos. Uh, and then Jesus on the cross uh, as the kind of echo of this, let us make human beings saying, it is finished. You know, the perfect human life and that in him uh, we can walk into that and um paul in his uh second letter to corinthians uh chapter 12 verse 2 he says i know a man i know a person anthropos again i know a a person in christ uh, talking about himself uh, it's a passage in which paul is against his better judgment uh talking about his own spiritual uh, experiences in other words, Paul is describing himself as someone who has found the secret of how Jesus gets you into the pool, how we can be healed, saved, how we can be like Jesus, fully human, how we can find this purpose that God has for our lives uh, to be uh, like Jesus, his good pleasure. And that's what I just want to delve into over the next uh, few minutes. And I want to walk through with you uh, one of the most personal verses uh, that Paul, um, in, in all of Paul's letters, the one that, where you get most personally Paul uh, in it. It's Galatians 2, uh, chapter 20. And Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So you can see it's intensely uh, per personal for Paul. I have been crucified. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live, uh, I live by faith who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's a verse also uh, that's become very personal uh, for me. And in order to explain that, I just want to share a little bit of uh, my own journey uh, over the last couple of years and how this verse has helped me uh, to make sense uh, of it. I don't know if you didn't know about the different kind of uh, personality tests that you can do. Uh, you know, Myers-Briggs and Belbin. And um, and there's one called the Enneagram, isn't it? And and, and uh, if you know the Enneagram, it's got um, nine different uh, personality 
great knowing laugh over that. I don't take it as a judgment. <laughs> and the fundamental characteristics of type three personalities, if there is a rosette going, if there's an opportunity to be recognized as the best at something, you want that rosette. Even if you're not at all interested in the underlying activity, <laughs> as soon as you hear that there's a rosette going, then you're interested. And in my life, my life in many ways has been one long pursuit of rosette after rosette, whatever was on offer. Anyway, there's a um, leadership program in the Church of England, which people are invited to apply for um, to, if they recognise having this sort of potential to be leaders in the church, so bishops and uh, deans and uh, cathedrals and, and archdeacons as well. <laughs> and the way it works is that the bishop sort of selects a couple of people and then sort of nominates them to this sort of central panel. And then there's kind of a um, there's kind of a quality control process. Most of the people who are nominated then go on to this program, uh, but um, uh, it's, uh, there's a quality control uh, process. Anyway, about two and a half years ago, my bishop had got in touch with me and said, "I'd like to put you forward uh, for this program." Big fat rosette. <laughs> Actually, it's not that I found out about it uh, then. I knew about it, and if I'm honest, quite a lot of what I was doing in my life and my ministry up to that point had got bent out of shape by thinking, well, will that help or hinder to get onto this program? But when I got the message from the bishop, I just went into overdrive. Poor Richard poured over successive drafts of my um, application. You know, I obsessed about the questions and what they would be and so on. And, and by the end, it was absolutely a complete ordeal. And then, uh, I went to it, and then one day after that happened, I was sitting at my desk, and the email came through from the bishop who ran the scheme, and um, I had this overwhelming sense of apprehension. So I just stepped away from my desk uh, for a minute. I don't really know why, and I actually sat and read a, a psalm, and it was all about the Lord's judgment bringing life. And I went back, and I opened the email, and it said, basically, it's no go for you. Total catastrophe. Big fat rosettes, but none for me. And for about half an hour, I was completely at sea. Do I even want to do this anymore? And then it just came to me. I just saw that it was from the Lord. I saw that it was a judgment on what my life and my ministry had become. The way I had more or less abandoned personal prayer in my life. The way I was lording it over Charlie and the girls. And I had ceased really in any real sense to walk in the fear of the Lord. And all I can say is that it has transformed my life. Now the only reset I want is Jesus Christ. He is all I want from life. And the thing that's embarrassing about telling that story is not, not to have had some knockback. The embarrassing thing is that to recognize in retrospect that something so trivial had become so important to me. And unless you're me, it's probably hard to see why this is such a big deal. Many of you have probably experienced much more difficult uh, knockbacks, painful, perhaps even terrible losses. A few weeks ago, I was interviewing a member of our congregation uh, who went blind uh, 15 years ago. And it's as a result of a genetic disease that affects one in 500 million people. So there are 14 people in four families in the world. He has six grandchildren, 
none of whom he's seen. And yet he tells a very similar story. In the midst of losing his sight 15 years ago, he had the most significant and transformative encounter with the Lord of his whole life. And he is a picture of joy and rejoicing in the Lord. It's incredible. So about six months after the episode with the, the leadership program, I attended a three-day theological conference uh, in Oxford. And the theme of the conference was the person of Jesus Christ. And it was quite a small conference, probably about 150 people. And the, arch, the old Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Rowan Williams, if you remember him, uh, he was there. And um, he was mostly sitting in on the different lectures, but he summed up at the end. And basically, if you're a theological conference like that, and Rowan Williams is there, he's like the Fonz, if you remember the Fonz. <laughs> One speaker stood up and they said, oh, it's amazing to be speaking. I'm completely different. And I'm saying, it was so great to uh, be standing here with Rowan, who's written the seminal, uh, sub, you know, so, so he's like the legend in that kind of environment. And at the end of the three days, he stood up at the end and he summed up the whole conference of three days, you know, all these theological papers, uh, an hour, no notes, this beautiful panorama of the person of Jesus Christ. And everyone was in awe. And then at the end of all, he said one thing that really stuck with me. He said, the person who knows no theology at all, but sincerely follows Christ, knows more about him than we have everything we've said in these last three days. And because he's Rowan Williams and they're theologians, they all took it on the chin and sort of nodded and said, of course. It's not about knowing a lot about Jesus. It's about being united to him. That's what this life is about. And through that conference, there were loads of different verses that jumped out uh, where Paul is describing uh, the, the fact that he's found this secret of being a person in Christ, this being united to him in his death so that he might manifest his resurrection power in him. But the verse I kept coming back to again and again in that conference and afterwards was this Galatians 2 20. And in particular, the first part of it, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I kept thinking for months after that, what on earth does Paul mean? I mean, obviously, on one sense, he's still alive, isn't he? He hasn't really. Uh, but what, what is he talking about? What is this? Uh, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the context uh, in Galatians is that Paul has been talking about everything that he has given up, uh, his former life in Judaism. And chapter one, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. He had a lot invested uh, in that life. Uh, but then in the immediately preceding verse to Galatians 2.20, he says, through the law, I died to the law. So something in him changed. And then verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And essentially, I think what Paul is saying is that as we unite ourselves to Jesus in his death, so he makes his life in us. It's kind of abstract, so I'll try and unpack that a little bit. The only people in history who have actually been crucified with Christ were the two thieves on the cross. And it's not so much as I sometimes imagine it that they kind of joined Jesus on the hill to make up the numbers. It's the contrary. He joined them and they were condemned. They were going to die anyway. But it was Christ's choice to enter into that death alongside them. It's his choice to join us in that death. 
And we have the choice about whether to join ourselves to him. You remember one of the two crucified, um, one of the two who were crucified alongside him hurled angry insults at him. But the other one reached out to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And people often say, don't they, that's terribly unfair. You know, the man was able to uh, obtain salvation right at the last minute. But actually, I see the courage. I see the courage in that. Uh, To acknowledge a whole life lived against God. And the last, to repudiate it utterly your whole life. And to throw yourself by faith on the mercy of Jesus. So he saw in that moment that Jesus' death, undeserved and freely chosen, was for him. And he joined his own death to Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the glory of the gospel is encompassed in that reply, isn't it? I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It's a word of such tremendous grace. It's a burden freely taken, a sentence gratuitously lifted. It's a word of indescribable love spoken out of the depth of Christ's assumption of our anguish, our suffering and our death, which is properly ours but it's born of a design him for us to know him and be with him forever. And of course, it's a word of indestructible hope. Today, you will be with me in paradise. If we believe in him, if we trust in him, if we unite ourselves to him, even in his death, most inexplicably, we are permitted to share in his resurrection now and for all eternity. And the place where Paul unpacks this dynamic most clearly is in Romans his letter. Paul has been explaining how through Jesus' death on the cross, God has forgiven all our misdeeds, past, present, and future. And the way that we appropriate that forgiveness is by faith in Christ. And in case you might ask, and many people do, why does it matter then how we live as Christians? If we're forgiven, for all that we do. Or as Paul puts it, what then shall we say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And the answer uh, Paul gives is, uh, in the original Greek, is not very easy to render in the English. It's variously translated as by no means, God forbid, no, no, certainly not. My my favourite is the J.B. Phillips translation. Uh, Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? What a ghastly thought. And Paul has two steps in his argument. First, Christ died to sin. So that's the first leg. In other words, he lived the perfect life of love. That's what we were looking at before the break. And secondly, we died with Christ. He died to sin. We died with Christ. And if both those things are true, then it follows that we died to sin, that we can share in this life. The point Paul is um, making is... um, bit like this. Imagine this Bible. And imagine um, you and I are this piece of paper and uh, Jesus is uh, the Bible. And what Paul is saying is that we are in Christ, in Christ. We're in him. We're united to him. And so what that means is whatever happens to the Bible happens to the piece of paper as well. In other words, that as we have died with Christ, so we will be raised with him. But the key thing is that identification, that being united uh, with him. 
Watchman Nee was a Chinese uh, Christian who lived and worked in the first half of the 20th century, and he was imprisoned in the end of his life by uh, the communist uh, government. Uh, and he wrote this. I remember one morning, the morning was a real morning, and one I can never forget. I was sitting upstairs at my desk, reading the word and praying, and I said, Lord, open my eyes. And then in a flash, I saw it. I saw my oneness with Christ. I saw that I was in him, and that when he died, I died. I saw the question of my death was a matter of the past and not of the future. And I was just as truly dead as he was, because I was in him when he died. The whole thing just dawned on me. I was carried away with such joy at this great discovery that I jumped from my chair and cried, praise the Lord, I am dead. <laughs> I ran downstairs and met one of the brothers helping in the kitchen and I laid hold of him. Brother, I said, do you know that I have died? I must admit he looked puzzled. <laughs> oh, it was so real for me. I longed to go through the streets shouting the news of my discovery. From that day to this, I have never for one moment doubted the finality of the world. I have been crucified with Christ. Now that might sound really abstract, very spiritual, maybe mystical, but actually it's intensely practical. Paul goes on uh, in this uh, verse uh, to say, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. So the life I live in the body. What Paul is talking about is that this happens not on some super spiritual plane, but it happens in the context of our ordinary everyday lives, this dynamic of union, of dying and rising with him. You know, the extreme, and this is the extreme, you see this dynamic of death for life, even in the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, the Orthodox theologian John Baer points out that that quotation from Irenaeus of Lyon, the glory of God is a human being fully alive, Actually, in Irenaeus, that's written about the martyrs, the early church martyrs. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And, and one of those, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, when he was writing to the Christians in Rome, and he was being transported uh, to uh, his execution in Rome, uh, and, and he was urging them not to bribe the authorities to keep him alive. And he wrote this to them. It is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be king over all the realms of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. Birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not want me to die. Suffer me to receive the pure light when I shall have arrived there. I shall be... Now that's pretty... But the sphere where this all happens, as I said, is in our ordinary everyday lives. Paul says, the life I now live in the body. I was once in a home group and um, in our home group, we, we used to pray at the end of the evening. And uh, one evening we were all together praying and uh, just in the middle of prayer. And there was this enormous fart sound um, <laughs> in the middle of the prayer time. And there was kind of like a bit of an awkward silence. Uh, and then, you know, being British, we just sort of ploughed on. Um, <laughs> so we kept praying, but then, it, then there was an absolute ripper. Uh, so we just opened our eyes and looked around and people were like, okay, come on, who, who, who was that? Massive long silence, you know, no one owning up, really, really awkward. And then after a while, my friend who was next to me said, sorry guys, <laughs> it was me. We're like, oh, it's so gross, oh, that's horrible. 
anyway, there was a guy who'd come to the home group that evening. And um, once my friend had said that, he piped up and said, uh, actually, it's me. I, and he had a remote controlled device uh, that made a fart sound and he put it under like one of the other chairs. And so he was setting it off uh, every so often. But what about my friend who owned up? I think that's one of the most incredible acts of Christian discipleship. <laughs> I think I've ever seen. It's so Christ-like, isn't it? To assume the guilt and the shame <laughs> for others. But that's where it all happens. That's where it all happens. It happens in the nitty-gritty of our lives. In my own journey over the last couple of years, it's been about whether I make prayer a priority in my life or not whether I'm proud or irritable, whether I do the housework, whether I complain about doing uh, the housework, how I handle praise, how I handle criticism, what, who I am when no one is watching, and many other seemingly insignificant aspects of day-to-day -day life. And the main obstacle to union with Christ that I find in my life is that I carve out areas of my life, and I think of them as being for me. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And the question that immediately arises is, what's he doing at the door? And who put him there? The challenge in living this life in union with Christ is to try and root out those places where we have put Christ at the door and said to ourselves, this is for me. It might be a sense of our own abilities, accomplishments, efforts, my intelligence, my looks, my personality, my work ethic whatever it might be. Or maybe you recognize this pattern. You feel like you've had a hard day. You've really been through it. And then the thought forms in your mind. And now finally, something for me. In my experience, nothing but bad things grow in those places because we're shutting out the life that Jesus wants to bring to us. So how do we counteract this? How do we, how do we cultivate this union uh, with Christ? Paul goes on and says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God. The essence of this union is faith. It's a living relationship and it has two pillars, listening and asking. The Greek word that's translated faith there can equally be translated faithfulness, faith or faithfulness. So faithfulness, listening to the Lord, finding out what he wants and faith, asking the Lord seeking his help, listening and asking, listening and asking. Uh, some of you might know the Pray As You Go uh, prayer app. Uh, it's from, put out by the Jesuits uh, in this country and uh, it took me a long time. So it's a prayerful way of praying the Bible. It took me a very long time to get on board with it. Richard recommended it to me probably when I was a curate, but I've only really recently uh, started to engage with it. And it's got this pattern in it of listening and asking. Like in the purest form, you might ask the Lord, what, what, what passage should I look at today? And then you might take the passage and you, you note down the things that strike you, listening. And then you make a request for grace, it's called. You know, based on what you've read, you ask for something. Lord, help me with this today. And then you read the passage slowly, engaging with it, allowing God to speak to you, listening. And then you finish by speaking to the Lord, asking. And then he might say something to you. Listening and asking. It's like breathing. Breathe in, listen, 
Breathe in, correct. Breathe in, breathe out, ask. But I don't know about you, but I find I swing between those two extremes. At times, I can be full of expectancy, full of asking. I'm completely sure the Lord will answer my prayers, even in the face of considerable obstacles. And at other times, I can be fully resigned to the Lord's will, for good or will, for good or ill, full of listening. But I'm not sure I'm both of those at the same time very often. And great faith is being able to hold those two together. That the Lord is able to do everything, but you don't have to do anything. It's recognizing that he has authority over every situation in my life, but he also has authority over me. Over the last um, year or so, I've been enjoying reading um, the 18th century revivalist and founder of Methodism, John Wesley, and his diaries. I think at various points in this process, Charlie's been a bit worried that I've become overly obsessed uh, with him. Um, sorry. Um, but one of the things I find very striking about his diaries is the incidents that he records. On the one hand, you have these accounts of his triumphs. You know, thousands turn up to him in all weathers. Uh, the, people way, the way people's lives are transformed, the extraordinary, often physical reactions of people uh, who hear him speaking, the miraculous escapes, he falls off a horse and is completely unscathed, uh, or um, there's a group of people trying to drive a bull through the crowd to stop them from listening to his preaching, uh, but the bull is, is miraculously diverted uh, onto a different path. So there's incredible uh, triumphs. But he also spends considerable amount of time, and sometimes unusual amount of time, looking at the accounts of people, Methodists, close to their death. And you would have thought that wouldn't really fit with his theology. It would all be about healing. You know, why aren't they healed? But sometimes he focuses, even these very tragic circumstances, on the consolation they find uh, from the Lord in their final hours, their trust in him, their endurance to the end. (coughs) So he holds those two things together, the asking and the listening, listening and asking. And you get a sense of those those two, in the covenant prayer, which um, the Methodists uh, still pray, John Wesley's uh, prayer, it goes like this. I'm no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt, rank me with who thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee, or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And so faith is is living in that gap between what God can do and what he chooses to do. And the challenge for us is that it involves giving up control. But the good news is that as we do, that's when Christ makes his life in us. So the verse can also be translated, um, I live by faith or faithfulness of the Son of God. In other words, I live by Jesus' faith or faithfulness. And as we give up control in this way, then he makes his love in us. Paul finishes uh, finally uh, by saying, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so as we give up control in our lives to be united uh, to him, it's his own self-giving love that he puts into us so we can give ourselves away to others and to him and be replenished with this self-giving love. 
just before the episode with the Church of England leadership programme I was telling you about at the beginning, I read a biography of another former uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm not obsessed with Archbishops of Canterbury, but um, uh, Robert Runcie, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, in the sort of 80s. And um, in the autobiography, there are two friends uh, of Runcie's. First, there's a friend called Gareth Bennett. And, and through the autobiography, Gareth Bennett is consumed uh, by the prospect repeatedly deferred of kind of promotion uh, in the Church of England. Uh, until finally, very tragically, uh, he took his own life in very tragic circumstances. But alongside that, there's another figure, Bill Val Vanstone, who, although he's br as brilliant as Runcie in every way, spent 30 years ministering on an estate in Lancashire. And there's a sense running through the autobiography that you wonder if in his heart of hearts, um, Runcie wondered, maybe I should have done that as well. A little while later, a friend of mine, totally unconnected from this, uh, directed me to a beautiful little book uh, by Van Stone. He talks things, uh, about the story of Jesus. He talks about how odd it is uh, that Judas has such a prominent role uh, in the end of the Gospels and how the word that's used uh, there uh, about Judas handing him over it's actually the same word that we have in Galatians 2.20, gave himself for me. Um, and it was became to be used very much about the cross. So, for example, he was handed over to death for our sins and raised for our justification. And then he points out how in the Gospels, there's this change in tone the moment Judas betrays Jesus. Like in Mark's Gospel, before that point, Jesus is charging around the point. There's lots of verbs. They're all active verbs. But from the moment he's handed over, uh, by Judas, every verse is in the passive tense. Every verse connected to Jesus, every verb connected to Jesus is in the passive tense. And passive is the same root word as passion, Jesus' passion. He hands himself over. That's the essence of his love. He gives himself, he hands himself over. And that's the essence of love in our lives as well. So as we do the same in our lives, as we, you know, hand ourselves over to God and to others, then he come, we come to understand at a deeper level what he has done for us. As we experience that, we, we understand him better. And then he replenishes us with his love. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we come towards a close, um, I'd love to give you an opportunity just to, uh, again, a bit like we did after the morning session, just kind of reflect on, you know, are there some areas in your own life where this connects, where, you know, maybe you need to lay some things down or, or, or maybe open yourself. Maybe there's an area that you know you're just closing off from him. Uh, and what we'll do is um, we've got a track we're going to play, Brew's going to play. Um, it's a few minutes and just encourage you just to sit, listen to words if you like, and just ask the Lord, what would you like to say? And just listen to what he says. Is that all right?
cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my soul rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, now no longer I, but Christ in me. I will run to the cross where you opened up my eyes. I will sing of the love that saved me. I will bow in the place where your death became my life. I will run, I will run to the cross. Oh, how endless the joy of a stone rolled away. It is there by grace I am raised to life. Now no longer I, but Christ in me. I will run to the cross where you opened up my eyes. I will sing of the love save me. I will bow in the place where your death became my life. I will run, I will run to the cross. Yes, I will run, I will run to Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be our life. Lord, as we, uh, as we unite ourselves to him, as we listen and ask, as we uh, submit, we pray that you would come and make your life in each one of us, Lord, in the every aspects, everyday aspects of our lives, Lord, all the things that we have thought about uh, in this moment. Lord, will you help us to hand ourselves over to you, or that you might make your perfect love in us, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.